Welcome to the Hills Baptist Podcast. We're so glad you're joining us as we see Jesus glorified, lives transformed, and hope revealed in the Adelaide Hills and beyond. We hope you enjoy this message. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded the... Uh, commanded by the king, was carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over the enemies who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities and all of the providences of the king of King Xerxes to attack the de- those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them because all the people and of nas- other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the king's administrators helped the Jews because of the fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces. He had become more and more powerful. The Jews struck down all of their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. They did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed Pashadada, Daphne, Asirapha, Poratha, Adelia, Adara, Pashmada, Asari, Adair, and Vasha. Those are the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha the enemy of the Jews, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. The number of those killed in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. The king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and 10 of the sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What they have done to the rest of the kings, what have they done to the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? It will be granted to you. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this this day's edict tomorrow also and let Haman's ten sons be impaled on poles. So the kings commanded that this be done. The edict was issued in Susa and they impaled the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the 14th day of the month of Adar and put to death in Susa 300 men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and gain relief from their enemies. The king set, um, they killed 75,000 of them, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. The Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th and 14th, and then on the 15th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. That is why rural Jews, those living in villages, observe the 14th of the month of Adar as a day of joy and feasting a day of giving presents to each other. Mordecai recorded these events. He sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, 
to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the time of the when the Jews got relief from their enemies and the month when their sorrow turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote to them to observe these days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue with the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against them to destroy them um, and cast them to Pua, that is, the lot, for the ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders to the, that the evil scheme of Haman had devised against the Jews had come back on his own head and that his sons should be impaled on poles. Therefore, these were the, called Purim, for the word pure. Because of everything written in this letter and because of what they had done, seen and what had happened to them, the Jews took it upon themselves to establish the custom that they had been, that their descendants who would, um, and all who should without fail observe these two days every year in the way that was prescribed at the appointed time. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation, by every family, in every province, in every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor the memory of these days die without, uh, die out among their descendants. So Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm the second letter concerning Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews in 20, 127 provinces of Xerxes' kingdom, words of goodwill and assurance, to establish these days of Purim at their desi the designated times, as Mordecai the Jew, Queen of Esther, uh, Queen Esther and decreed for them and that they established themselves and their descendants in regard with their times of fasting and lamentation. Esther's decree confirmed these regulations in Purim and it was written down in the records. King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to distant shores and all the acts of his power and might together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted. Are they not written in the book of Annals, the king of Media and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews and held in high esteem by his fellow, many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of the Jews. Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Gosh, you're close. That's all right. In the spray zone. Um, my name's Nick Van Ruth. If we haven't met before, uh, I'd love to meet you soon. Uh, Luke's moved out of the street. <laughs> it's not that bad. Come on. Um, I'm uh, one of the pastors here at Hills Baptist, uh, and it is a great joy to be joining with you. A great uh, privilege 
to end our series in the book of Esther. Uh, the book of Esther has been a really, I think it's been a really significant, really helpful series, thinking about the bravery of Esther, the wisdom of Mordecai, and the sovereignty of God. Uh, it's been a very significant book for Christians over many years. But for Jewish people, uh, this book has an even, even deeper significance uh, in, in its history as, as a nation. Uh, even like the Jews as a people have experienced all sorts of persecution, all sorts of hardship, particularly in the last century with the Holocaust and, uh, and the, the uh, persecution under Nazi Germany and their, their desire to um, eradicate them, uh, bringing them to concentration camps and things like that. This fascinating um, history of the book of Esther in that context, in these concentration camps, the book of Esther specifically was outlawed. And if any Jew was found with a copy of the book of Esther, the book was burnt and the person was killed. And so what the Jews went and did is they memorized the whole book in its entirety in these concentration camps. Now, why was Nazi Germany so terrified of this book? Why are they so afraid of, of this book about this Jewish queen? It's because it gave hope to the Jewish people that no matter what they're facing or feeling, God would save them. God would bring salvation. God would bring about his work. And so that's what the point of the book of Esther is. And, uh, and kind of as we get to the end of the book, we discover uh, that this whole book has been leading to the introduction of this feast called Purim. And we'll talk about that soon. But just as a recap, what's been happening in this book? It's set in uh, Persia with King Xerxes or King Ahasuerus, um, who is the king at the time. Um, and king of the Persian Empire, which is the ruling superpower at the time. This is kind of after the Jews have been exiled from Jerusalem, from the land of Israel, and a lot have been sent back, uh, but the Jews are kind of scattered throughout the provinces of, uh, of Persia. Uh, king Xerxes invites his wife, to come and dance for him and his friends, effectively come and do a strip tease for him and his friends. His wife refuses, refuses, Queen Vashti, and so he kicks her out. And that leaves a gap. He needs a king. Every king needs a queen. Uh, so King uh, Xerxes has a beauty contest, a conscripted beauty contest. More like a sex contest, really. But, uh, and, queen, uh, and Esther, a Jew, uh, has to take part and then she wins, or that she's selected to be the queen to King Xerxes. And that's against her will. That's, that's not a, a, a happy, healthy situation that she finds herself in. Uh, but her, her uncle, Mordecai, uh, thwarts an assassination attempt on the king. And this guy, Mordecai, gets honored by the king. Now, that's a really great thing to do. And in, in, if there's a king and there's an assassination attempt, you stop it. He gets honored. Now, Haman, the bad guy of the story, Haman, second in charge to the king, he doesn't like that Mordecai gets honored. And so he comes up with a plot to kill Mordecai and to kill his people. And he pitches it to the king. 
uh, as an economic thing, right? He says to the king, wouldn't you love for the, king of, for the kingdom of Persia to increase in, um, in value, increase our plunder? So why don't we go and we, if we kill all of the Jews and then take their plunder, we'll become more rich as a kingdom. Who, what king doesn't want a more rich kingdom, right? And the king goes, great, that sounds good. And so they, they send an edict out, a letter throughout their, all their promises uh, that on a certain date, uh, the, the Jews will be killed. Now, to pick that date, Haman casts lots. He, he throws a purr, which is the Persian word for, for lots or dice. To pick the date, they cast lots. It's a seven for anyone who's interested. I pick a date. And it's the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, which is probably March in, in our calendar. But that's the day where the Jews will be destroyed. That's the day marked for the destruction and the killing and the plundering of all the Jews across the Persian Empire. It's not a good thing. Now, Mordecai and Esther, they talk about this. They come up with a plan. Esther goes and um, goes and approaches the king. Now, normally that's a situation if you were to approach the king uninvited and the king's not happy about that, the penalty for that kind of disrespect is death. But she approaches the king and he happens to be in a good mood that day. And he's excited to see the queen. And he, and he says, what would you like? And she says, well, would you come to dinner with me? You and, and Haman, your right-hand man, come to dinner with me. So she has a banquet for him and uh, they have dinner. And at the dinner, it's a great dinner. He says, what would you like? What would you like? And she says, come to dinner tomorrow. So that she, he comes to dinner tomorrow. And then the next day, and on the third feast, third, third banquet that she puts on for King Xerxes and Haman, she finally raises this issue with the king. And she says to the king, King, someone's out to kill your queen. The king says, who? She says, this man, Haman, who's sent an edict to kill, uh, a letter to kill all of the Jews. The king gets angry at Haman. Haman leaves. Sorry, the king leaves. Haman pleads with Esther for his life. The king gets back and sees Haman like, pleading with Esther. He thinks uh, this is a terrible situation going on. So he uh, commands that Haman's immediately killed. And Haman ends up being Hanno Galor impaled on the pole that Haman had set up for Mordecai. Now Haman ends up dead on that pole. And Mordecai and Esther uh, work out, well, what's next? How do we reverse this edict? And so Mordecai writes an a response to the edict that goes out, which is not to reverse the original one because we can't, the king can't go back on his word. Instead, they say the Jews can fight back. The Jews can defend themselves on this day. And that stirs fear amongst the empire of, of Persia to the point that many people become Jews in support of them. And so this, this whole book has been leading up to this day, the 13th of the 12th month, this 
this whole whole leading up to this day of destruction, this day set apart for the destruction of the Jews. And in chapter 9, we come to that day. We, we come to the scene where all this happens, all this stuff goes down. And what happens? What happens on this day? Uh, have a look, verse 1. Now, we read in NIV before, and Luke's going to love this. I like the ESV better <laughs> because the words it uses, this day was set apart for the destruction of the Jews. NIV says the tables were turned. The ESV, uh, I reckon it's closer, is better. It was reversed. It was reversed. What, what was set apart for the destruction of the Jews, the defeat of the Jews, the reverse happened. That day that was meant for destruction became the day of victory for the Jews. And it, and it seems and come across quite violent. So on that day uh, that was given to the destruction of the Jews, the reverse happened. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them, those who were out to get them. And the Jews, uh, they had gathered to defend themselves. And also says the officials and other um, satraps and governors and royal agents also helped the Jews. They had support from the officials. They de- defeated all who were out to get them. And in Susa, the capital city, in the citadel, there was 500 people and the 10 sons of Haman. Uh, the Jews that were set to be defeated and destroyed, the reverse happened. They were victorious. Haman and his family were set to be honored, but the reverse happened. They were killed. Mordecai was set to be killed, but the reverse happened. Mordecai was honored. We see that in in chapter 10. He becomes the second greatest man in the Persian Empire. These things that were set in place, lots cast, it could be a, a thing of chance of this day set apart for the destruction of Jews. The reverse happens. The great reversal. A day that was meant for defeat becomes a day of victory for the people of God. And then three times, three times it's mentioned that they will not, that they did not lay their hands on the plunder. So the Jews fought back. And they defeated those who were out to get them, but they did not take the plunder. Which means they did not lay hands on uh, women or children. They did not take what was not theirs because it wasn't an economic thing. It wasn't about retaliating and doing like for like. It was defending themselves, defending themselves against their enemies. Now, Esther, uh, this happens on the 13th day. And during that day, King Xerxes comes to Esther and, and says, gosh, all this stuff has gone down. The 10 sons of Haman have died. Many people in the citadel have died. What else would you like? And Esther says, can we do it again tomorrow? <laughs> and ask for another day of the Jews defending themselves, going and finding those who are out to get them and killing them. Now, it's, it's really it's, it's not clear why Esther asked for the second day. Some people suggest that it's, it's kind of a reflection of the, the brutality of uh, those she's hung around, of Haman and the king, and she's kind of caught up in that and retaliating. Or it could be that uh, the first day was in the citadel, in the center of the city, but then there was still 
threats to the Jewish people in the wider city area. So it required a second day of the Jews going out and defending themselves. It's not clear. But but in all, on the first day, on the 13th, and then the second day, the 14th, over those two days, 800 people were killed in defense of the Jews. And then on the 15th day, they rested. They had a feast. They had a massive celebration because on that 15th day, they had relief from their enemies. Now, that's what happened in the city. In the provinces, it was slightly different because they didn't have time to send a letter to go and tell everyone throughout those provinces, you got another day. So in those other provinces, throughout the Persian Empire, they defended themselves on the 13th. And it says that they, they uh, killed 75,000 people. Now, that sounds like a lot of people. But when we take into fact, it, 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 yeah, take in that there's 127 provinces. And so 75,000 divided by 127. Quick, someone worked that out. Sorry, I got it. It's about 60 to 70 people. Did the maths before. <laughs> 60 to 70 people per province. So it's not quite as violent as, as was immediately apparent in the passage. <laughs> but then on the 14th day, they rested. They feasted. They gave each other gifts. They celebrated that they were saved from those who were out to get them. This day that was meant for the destruction of the Jews was reversed became a day of victory, a day of feasting, a day of celebration. And that begins the Feast of Purim. The Feast of Purim. Mordecai writes to all of the Jews uh, from verse 20 onwards, and he says, keep these days, keep these days, the 14th and the 15th. These are days to celebrate what God has done. Now, take note, these are the rest days. They're not the violence days. They're not celebrating the Jews going out and killing other peoples. They're celebrating the relief they got from their enemies. Verse 22, as these days that they're to celebrate, as the days which the Jews got relief from their enemies. It's the days of great reversals. And as the month that had been turned for them, reversed for them, from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into a holiday. These days represent the great reversal. And they are to be kept every year for every generation, in every family. These days, the Feast of Purim, the 14th and the 15th of the month of Adar, celebrated to remember the, the great reversal. Now, why, why is it called Purim? It's really fascinating. It says in verse 23, so the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, right? The big bad bad guy. He had plotted against the Jews to destroy them. And he had casted pur, casted lots, like, like gambled to figure out a day of when the Jews were to be destroyed. 
to crush and destroy them. Uh, the word per is a Persian word that means lot. Per. The Jewish uh, equivalent is goral, uh, which means lot or dice or chance. And what was, pl- what was planned and what was left to chance or chance, depends on what part of the country you're from, God controlled the outcome. God controlled the outcome. The destruction of the Jews was planned. The die was cast. But God had a greater plan, a bigger purpose that he controlled and worked towards. And he worked through uh, Mordecai, he worked through Esther, and he walked through, worked through even the king to save the Jews. And so this is a day, this is a feast or days to celebrate the sovereignty of God. And the book of Esther is all about the sovereignty of God. Now, what does sovereignty mean? Sovereign uh, comes from the two words super and reign. Super as the idea of over and reign as rule, power, authority. And the sovereignty of God speaks to God's authority and power and influence over everything. Over everything. King Xerxes was the king of the Persian Empire, but God is the king of the entire universe. Xerxes has authority to make decisions and to influence actions and to send his people to do certain things. God has authority and power to determine the outcome of any event throughout history, even the rolling of dice. God knows the outcome. God controls the outcome. King David, uh, a great um, king... Uh, the great king of Israel in the Old Testament. He, uh, he speaks and uses very similar language in Psalm 16, verse 5. He says, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure, my, my circumstance, my situation secure. And the word he uses for lot there is goral, the, the Hebrew equivalent to per. He talks about the portion that's given to him, the the circumstances and the life that he has found himself in is given by God. And that's why as part of this feast, uh, the Israelite people were um, to give gifts of food to one another. And the word for gift is the same word for portion that David uses in Psalm 16. To remind each other. What we are given, the situation we're in, is under the rule, the reign, the sovereignty of God. He reigns above it all. Now, it's fascinating. It's, and I just find this mind-boggling, right? So many people have written about the sovereignty of God. Throughout church history, throughout all of history, the sovereignty of God, it's, there's no shortage of discussion about God's sovereignty people's responsibility, how does all work together. And the book of Esther, right, 
talks and explains this idea, this concept that God is in control, God is sovereign, without actually mentioning God. Now that is quite an achievement. But it's there, isn't it? God's nowhere in the book. But he's actually everywhere throughout the book. We see him on every page, behind every event, behind every decision, behind every person. And it's not just one big thing that God does. It's, it's a whole series of small steps that sets up God saving his people. King Xerxes and, and Vashti, if Vashti had refused to dance for the king, sorry, if she hadn't refused and did it, then she would still be queen and Esther wouldn't have been queen. If Mordecai hadn't thwarted that, that assassination attempt and been honoured like he was, then Haman never would have plotted to kill him. Now, if Haman had never plotted to kill Mordecai and kill all those Jews, then all these people throughout the province who were, uh, who were persecuting the Jews, who were racist against the Jews, who were out to get them and out to kill them, would have still been there and probably would have persecuted and oppressed the Jews to the point of potentially eradication. But God had a plan for his people, the people, the Jewish people, even though they were scattered throughout the world and in Jerusalem, he had a plan and a promise that through the Jewish people, there would be a light to all nations, that God's plan of salvation for the whole world would be through the Jewish people or Jewish person. And the events that happen in Esther preserve these people, protect these people. Now, God is clearly working throughout these pages, throughout this story, through the actions of uh, all the characters, through Mordecai, through Esther, through through the king, and even through Haman. And that raises the question, if God is working and influencing the actions of people, why are they held responsible for those actions? Why is Haman killed for something that God seems to be influencing him to do? And this like, comes to this question of, is God, if God is sovereign over all things, do human beings have responsibility for our actions? And again, this, this, this is a discussion. There's no shortage of, of books and podcasts and whatever else. But I think as we, as we read this book in Esther and as we read the whole Bible, this question does, isn't really a question. Both are portrayed as true. In the story, it doesn't say that God is entirely control and there's no responsibility, no autonomy of the people. And also doesn't say that the people are entirely responsible and and entirely um, dictating how things are God and that God has no control over it. But both these things are portrayed as true, that God is sovereign and powerful and influencing events throughout history, but also that human beings have a responsibility for the decisions we make, the actions we take, 
And these two things that we feel like aren't compatible, that don't go together, well, maybe they do. Maybe these two things are compatible. We just can't understand how. Because God's ways are so much greater than our ways. These two things are presented both true at the same time. We see it in Psalm 16 again, uh, where we quoted that before. Where David says, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. So he's t- G- David is talking about God's action that his lot is secure, his portion is given to him. David is passive in that exchange, but he's not without responsibility. Verse seven and eight. So I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him and my right hand, I will not be shaken. David says that my lot is secure, but I've got to trust God. God's powerful, God's sovereign, but I have a responsibility to trust in Him, to follow Him, to keep my eyes on the Lord. Other people may roll the dice, we may roll dice, circumstances happen, things go wrong, things, stuff goes haywire. We're responsible for the outcome and the consequences of our actions. We're responsible to take control and and deal with ourselves, what we're doing. But at the same time, God is powerful and sovereign and working through us, working through all things to his plan and purpose. Now, not one of Mordecai, Esther, Haman, or the king would have known their part in this bigger story throughout as it was unfolding. But as the Jews uh, read this, they, they could see, you could see God working through all these other characters. But even then, Jews who, who read it when it was first written wouldn't know the full story, the greater story that Esther is only one part of, God working in the world. When, as Mordecai becomes prominent in the, uh, in the Persian Empire, The Jews are protected and the Jews are honoured. And this leads to the historical and geopolitical scenario, the historical and geopolitical setting in which Jesus enters into the world. God himself enters into the world as a Jewish person, born in Bethlehem, living throughout Israel, dying just outside of Jerusalem. And the Messiah, the one that God had promised through whom the whole world would be saved, he comes because God has dictated the circumstances that would lead to this happening. And with Jesus brings the greatest reversal of all history. Jesus died, was buried. Imagine the disciples on that day, their, their leader who they've been following, hanging on a cross, suffering, tortured, 
breathing his last breath, then buried in the ground, hopeless. He's dead. And then the reversal, the reverse of death. He, Jesus rises from the dead, bringing new life to any who would trust in him. And even now, as, as the world gets more confused and chaos, chaotic, Jesus has promised that he will come again and he will bring another great reversal. The reversal of the curse, the reversal of sin, the reversal of death, so that whoever believes in him will not be put to death, but will, be, will have eternal life, eternal life with God in his presence forever. God is working through every time, every space so that His plan would come to pass. And His plan is that He will dwell with His people. Unhindered by sin, unhindered by all the brokenness and corruption and the mess of this world, Jesus paid for all that stuff. And those who trust in Him, trust in that sacrifice, trust in His work, will dwell with God in heaven forever. There is a story of God working behind the scenes to direct history towards a particular end and purpose. This is his story. All of history is Jesus' story, his story. Because Jesus, as God's son, as the Messiah, as the King, He's the one who reigns over everything. He's the one with authority and power over the whole earth, over everything, over you and over me. And the question is, are we submitting to that authority or are we rejecting it? Are we submitting to His authority or are we rejecting it? Now, how, how does the sovereignty of God affect our lives? This big idea that God is powerful and has authority over everything, how does that actually affect how we live today? And I've got three things I want to suggest how it affects us. How we pray, how we trust, and our action. The first thing, if we truly believe that God has power and authority over circumstances, over events, over everything, then when we pray, we actually believe he has the power over everything, over every event, over every circumstance, over everything. And I wonder how much we pray and we just pray because that's what Christians do. And we pray because we know that we're meant to talk to God and we're meant to ask the things, but we don't actually believe that God's going to do anything. So we pray and we go and try and sort it out in our own strength. We pray and we go to look to other solutions outside of God. We pray, but we don't actually believe that He can do anything in that scenario. But if we truly believe that God has power, as is described in the book of Esther, then we know that God has the power to influence anything in this world. He can heal miraculously. He can influence decisions. He can change the heart of people. Do we truly believe God has the power to answer our prayers? 
The Bible says he does. The Bible says he does. I wonder how would our prayer lives change if we truly, truly believed that God had the power to answer them? What would we pray for? What would be our priorities? How often would we pray? The second thing, trust. Whatever we might be going through, whatever you may have gone through in the past, whether, whatever you might go through in the future, I can't say they'll get any better for you. And I can't say that things will be resolved in the ways that we would like. But I can say that God uses all things for the good of those who love him. Last year, um, at the beginning of the year, uh, my wife and our family, we went on a holiday. It was really lovely. We came home on January 27th uh, to a flooded house. A hose uh, underneath our bathroom sink burst two days earlier. And uh, it was about ankle deep of water over a third of our house. Many of you know this story. That was a chaotic, disruptive time. It took us six months uh, dealing with insurance, dealing with contractors, getting back into our house. This was also during a time that where our second child uh, had uh, breathing issues and, and quite significant health issues. It was also a time where our older child was starting ELC and that was really disruptive and, and, and tricky for him. And in that scenario, like looking in externally and at the time we think, why is this happening to us? But now looking back, I can see that we, where we stayed was one of the most peaceful, helpful places for us at that time. And in other circumstances, I started a new job and my original plan was we're just going to go hard on hospitality, have people over at our house every Sunday lunch. Uh, but this, I wouldn't have a house to bring anyone to. So we didn't do that. And that actually led to, I think, a really healthy uh, balance for us as a family. I didn't have the opportunity to completely burn both Emily and I out by having people over all the time. A much more stable and, and wise um, uh, entry into this new role. Things I couldn't have predicted or thought, but God knew that and knew what was best for me. And that really tough scenario was used for our good. Often um, people ask me, uh, in amidst all chaos, and, and I've got a lot of stuff going on in my life. And people see that and recognize and ask, why are you so calm in it all? And I'm not actually that calm. And Looks can be deceiving. That's part of the answer. But the real answer is because I truly believe God is sovereign. I truly believe God has power over everything and that no matter what happens to me in this life, I'm part of a bigger story and I'm part of a bigger story throughout history where God has sent his son to save me and I have a place with him in heaven forever. I have a place where I will dwell with God in his presence forever, no matter what's going to happen. And that brings me greater trust than anything else. 
could bring me. And that's not to say if, if you're anxious or you struggle with anxiety or anything like that, and here's the golden ticket of how to break anxiety, that if you just, just believe that God's sovereign and it'll be fine. I, that's not the answer. But I think even, even in that, even if we feel anxious, even if we doubt, even if we really wrestle with God, there's a truth that's even deeper than that, that God has us, God loves us, God's got a great plan, and He's got power over everything so that no matter what we're facing and no matter what we're feeling, God is in control, even when we don't feel it, even when we feel the, the absolute opposite of that. God is in control. The last thing, it affects our prayer life, it affects how we trust and our action. Now, often um, when we talk about God's power, God's sovereignty, one response is, well, why bother doing anything? If God's got a plan, it's all going to come to pass anyway, and God's going to dictate things, and it, that's going to happen whether I'm involved in it, if I do anything or not. Now, that's just not the picture that's given in Scripture. Of course, yeah, God's sovereign, God's powerful, but we have responsibility. We have a part to play in the work that God is doing throughout the world. That's clear throughout Scripture. And it's not so much that God does all the work and we do nothing. It's also not that we do all the work and that God does nothing. The sovereignty of God tells us, shows us that as we go out doing things for God, as we go out fulfilling the Great Commission, as we go out in obedience with God, we're not alone. It's not up to us alone. We're not alone in the sense that we've got the community of God. We're not alone in the sense we have the Holy Spirit with us. But we're not alone in the sense that God is working with us. It's not up to us to figure it all out. It's not up to us to get it all right. God is in control. God is working. So we can step out. We can be brave beyond our own capacities. Brave like Esther entering into the king's presence at the risk of death. We can be brave because we know we're not alone. God is working. God is working in us. God is working in the world. God is working for his purpose. Finally, to wrap up, I want to remind us where I started. Why were the Nazis so afraid of this book, the book of Esther, to the point of burning it and killing anyone who had it? Because it gave the Jews hope. Now, the world and the, the other powers out there are afraid of Christians having hope of Christians believing that there is a power greater than anything else in this world. And it doesn't, they, they don't want us to believe that. They want us to doubt it. They want us to forget it. People don't like the thought that there's a greater power and authority. And the devil wants us to forget it, doubt it, deny it. Because he's scared. He's scared of God's power. He knows that in the end, God wins. So in the meantime, he's working. 
to make us doubt and deny. So what we all need to do is remind each other again and again and again that God is powerful, God is working, and God loves us. God is powerful, God is working, and God loves us. And to finish up, I want, to, I want us all to get involved in one of the practices of Purim. Part of the practice, I mentioned it before, was to give, uh, give out portions, give out a, a gift to someone else, and it was generally the poor or, um, or the needy, and they would go around and give gifts to each other, give portions. And that portion uh, was to signify and remember that what the situation we find ourselves, the circumstances, is a gift from God. And God is in control and God is working. And so what I have here, and Luke can, uh, we can, we can help pass these out. Here is some gifts to share with each other. Grab one, pass it on. And what, the, what, the perp, what we're going to do is uh, you're going to take one of these. These are not for you. These are to give to someone else. Give to someone you don't know yet or you haven't met. You can do this by yourself or you can go in a pair, go meet someone new. Give them the chocolate. And then share how God has been working in your life. It could be a story like, like mine where circumstances that you, you thought you were in trouble, but actually God came through, God did something powerful. It could be just where you're at on the journey with God, how you came to be here tonight. It could be how God has answered your prayer in some way. But what we'll do is we'll take a couple of minutes to go and to uh, enjoy the Feast of Purim. Sorry, there's not a whole feast, just a little chocolate. But do one of these practices, because this is what Christians do. We tell each other how God has been working in our lives. We share testimonies, and a testimony is testifying, giving evidence that God is working. God is powerful. God loves us. So this is what we're going to do as individuals or pairs going around, finding someone you haven't met or haven't spoken to yet, giving them a chocolate, enjoying the chocolate, and sharing how has God worked in your life? How have you seen the sovereign power of God working in your life? I'll give you a few minutes to do that, then we'll gather again together to continue worshipping Him. Thanks for listening to the Hills Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to partner with us in developing and equipping passionate disciples who love God, love people, and boldly share the gospel, you can do that at hillsbaptist.com forward slash giving. We pray this message has empowered you to live and love more like Jesus. Have an amazing day.